All right, well, as Dr. Lewis said, my name is Nabil Qureshi, um, and I am honored to be here, honored to teach. I'm really excited to be at Biola. I don't know if you know, but I was uh, part of the MA program back in 2006. So how many of you are taking or doing the apologetics MA right now? Wow, a good number of you, that's great. Um, I did the modular program, uh, but it was, it was a huge blessing. It really helped me uh, get well-grounded. I had become a believer in 2005, so being able to uh, do the apologetics program early on really gave me a solid foundation, and uh, it helped me through some tough times. Being able to refer back to the things I had learned and studied was really good. So if those of you who aren't in the program, if you're considering it, I would highly suggest it. Um, it was something that I will carry with me forever. So my name is Nabil. I was born and raised in the United States, and I was raised a devout Muslim. So I came um, in the 80s, uh, that's when I was born, uh, child of the 80s, uh, love my Thundercats and uh, Silverhawks. Um, so I, you know, bona fide American child growing up here in the United States, but my parents came from Pakistan. So you have people coming from all around the world to the United States, mainly for the same reasons that your ancestors might have come to this nation, which is for freedom and for opportunity. Uh, my parents belonged to a sect of Islam uh, called Ahmadiyyat, um, and this sect was under heavy persecution in Pakistan. And so when they came here, they were coming for freedom as well as for opportunity. So the Islamic world isn't monolithic. Uh, it, it's, it's not one big happy family. There's a lot of division, a lot of strife internally amongst Muslims. When my parents came, they really came with nothing and didn't really have much of an idea of what the United States was like. They just knew that this was a place you'd come for opportunity. And so when my dad uh, landed, um, this was actually right after Elvis had died. So Elvis had just died. My dad gets off the plane. He looks at a newspaper and it says, the king is dead. <laughs> and he was immediately confused as to the form of government in this nation. Um, but he slowly got accustomed to some of the terms and the culture. He joined the Navy. Um, ultimately, my dad stayed in the Navy until uh, two, the year 2000. So he retired a lieutenant commander 24 years in the U.S. Navy. Uh, and so you might ask yourself, can, can Muslims really be contributing members to the armed forces? Yes, they can. Um, a lot of Muslims are in the armed forces and dedicated to our nation. Um, now, some of you might have seen other things on the news about how Muslims are totally against the United States. And we'll be talking about all that. We've got plenty of time together, so um, don't worry. Your questions will hopefully be answered as we go along. And if you have any questions, uh, feel free to ask. If you think that they can further clarify some of the stuff I'm talking about, maybe I missed something important, definitely throw your hand up to ask. And if you have other questions, maybe more minor or personal questions, hold those to the end, and we'll take questions um, at the end of every session as well. So, um, by the way, the reason I'm sharing my testimony with you is because often we look at Islam and we see it as the other. You know, we don't understand it. We don't know the people. And that creates a block for us to go and talk to them, to go and evangelize, to go and become friends. Um, we see them as people to argue with, maybe wrestle with, tumble with, but not people to love and share the gospel with in a way that we would honor Christ. And so that is why I'm trying to give you some personal insight into my life. Um, and so that you can see some of the more intimate aspects of Islam as well. Because my family was extremely intimate. Uh, as you can understand, my family coming from Pakistan here to this country, they didn't really have much of anyone to lean on. Um, they didn't have a, a social structure that they could uh, rely upon. So that they really had to build up one for themselves everywhere they went. And then my father, being in the Navy, had to move constantly. So this created a, a situation where they, we really relied on each other. Um, when I was born, my family went through the, the traditional 
uh, processes, you know, when you have a, bo- a son born into the family, uh, the first thing you do as soon as a son is born is you recite the adhan or the call to prayer in his ear. And so my father, very first thing I ever heard was the shahada and the call to prayer. Um, I heard that the moment I was born, and, and those principles, those Islamic principles, those calls to living an Islamic life were ingrained in me from the very beginning. Because you see, my mother wasn't just a practicing Muslim, that she was, but she was also the daughter of a lifelong missionary. Her father spent his whole life preaching Islam in Indonesia. She was born in Indonesia because that's where her father was when he was preaching. Uh, her and her, four sister, or her three sisters, all four of them were born overseas. So even though she was Pakistani by, by, by nationality, she was born in Indonesia. She had to go back. She had to learn that culture. She had a lot of the missionary kids' issues that, that we have. She had those as well. Um, but in our, uh, in our culture, it's really, really ingrained in us to follow the heritage, follow the culture. That is your identity. And so that my mother was the daughter of a missionary, that became even more her identity. It was really a part of who she is, Islam. And that's not an accident, by the way, because her mother, so my grandmother, was also the daughter of a lifelong missionary. He spent his whole life preaching Islam in Uganda, and so she was born in Uganda. Um, so my family is, has a line of missionaries in it, and I come from that. My father as well, on his side, his grandfather was very well known as a missionary for that sect of Islam. So. When, when we came to this country, well, I was born here, but when my parents came here, they saw it as their duty to instill in me Islamic principles because if they didn't, then the principles of the country would seep into me and I would become Americanized, I would become uh, westernized, and both of those are seen as bad things by a lot of immigrants. As I was growing older, my parents taught me that I should really, really practice Islam from my very core. So much so that I actually, living in the United States, didn't learn to read English until after I had learned to read Arabic. I had read the entire Quran in Arabic before I knew how to read English. Um, so, and my parents didn't speak Arabic. They spoke Urdu, which is the language of Pakistan. So we weren't even speaking Arabic, but I learned, the whole, I learned how to read the language so I could read the scriptures. And it's understood in Islamic culture that just reading the Quran is a blessing for you and for the people around you. The sound of it, hearing it, blesses wherever can hear it. And so from a very early age, my parents taught me uh, how to read the entire Quran. I had memorized many chapters of the Quran at an early age. Uh, I had memorized the last 15 chapters of the Quran. Um, so... When I was going through all this, my parents taught me, Nabil, you have to understand that as a child growing up in the United States, it doesn't matter how good of a citizen you are. It doesn't matter how good of an American you are. Whenever people see you, they will think Muslim. They'll think Muslim. So be the best American you can be, but at the same time, be the best Muslim you can be because you are an ambassador for Islam and you can't help it. You always are going to be that. And that's how my parents raised me. And in order to understand the Islamic way of life, my parents didn't just have me read the five daily prayers. Now, how many of you know that Muslims pray five daily prayers? Pretty much most of you. Those are a specific kind of prayer. They're called salat. Those are the obligatory prayers. But Muslims pray all kinds of other prayers during the day, and most of them are prescribed prayers, prayers that have been written out for them, and they memorize them. For example, the moment I would wake up in the morning, my mom had taught me to recite the words, Alhamdulillahillazi ahiyana ba'dama matana wa alayhin nushur. Anyone know what that means? No, neither did I. But I recited it anyway. 
because my mom had taught me to recite it. Later on, she taught me what the, the translation was when I got to an age where I could understand and where it would be important. Uh, but the, the translation basically thanks Allah for waking me up from the death of sleep. So every morning, I would be in the remembrance of Allah and immediately engage in a duty um, in order to please Allah. As soon as I would walk from uh, my bed to wash up for the morning, there was a prayer to recite at that time too while walking to the restroom. And then as I'd walk into the restroom, my mom had taught me to be like, every time you walk in the restroom, you step in with your left foot first. Why? Because that's what the prophet did. And so I'd, I'd remember these things as I'm, as I'm waking up, as I'm going through my day. And it's kind of like a form of devotionals, but it's pretty intense. It's very rigorous if you follow it the way uh, that Muslims have traditionally done so. And then before Muslims pray the five daily prayers, they have a traditional washing up, well, not ceremony, but a ritual washing. It's called wadu. It's a form of ablution. And so while doing that in the morning, wash my hands, you know, washing my face, washing my feet, there would be a prayer to recite. So I'd be reciting that prayer. It'd be prayer after prayer after. As soon as the wadu was done, there was another prayer to recite. As I'm going downstairs to recite my first of the five daily prayers, called the fajr prayer, there would be a prayer to recite before the prayer. And then there'd be a prayer to recite after the prayer. Are you getting the picture? It's just life as a Muslim was imbued in constant reverence and remembrance of Allah. And so in that sense, there's actually some in common, um, a good deal in common between Christians and Muslims. Both of them have a devotion to one God. Uh, now, the, the image of that God and the teaching of that God are very different, but they do have this devotion to that God, and that does build a platform on which to begin to communicate. But my parents taught me, Nabil, as you are going into school, as you are going to college, you are going to encounter people who want to share Christianity with you. What they don't know is that Christianity is actually a polytheistic faith. And they don't understand why they believe it. And in order to know that, simply ask them. Ask them to explain the Trinity to you. They won't be able to explain it. They will say God is one and God is three. Well, how can he be both? Isn't that a contradiction? No, it's a mystery. Well, if that's the case, why should I believe it? What compelling reason is there for me to believe that? And I actually think you're trying to disguise the belief in three gods into a more acceptable belief of one God. That's how I was taught to respond to the Trinity. But far more important to most Muslims in this country, if you've ever engaged in a conversation with Muslims and the Trinity probably did come up, but another thing that will come up almost immediately is the deity of Christ. Now, I had been taught, Nabil, if anyone ever says to you, do you know Jesus? Your response should be, absolutely. I know who he is. I know that he is virgin born. I know that he cleansed the leprous and that he healed the deaf and the blind. I even know that he raised the dead. And I know that he's gonna come back at the end of times and I know he is the Messiah. But I also know he is not God. I remember the first time someone uh, tried to approach me with that question. Um, I thought she was crazy. Turns out she was on fire for the Lord, but those are very easy to confuse. Um, so I'm sitting in Latin. This was uh, my 11th grade year. I'm sitting in Latin class, uh, which was second bell, busily doing the homework for my third bell. When, she, when her, well, I'm not sure if I can say her name or recording this. She turns around and uh, she says to me, Nabil, do you know Jesus? And I give her my spiel. And she says, no, Nabil, Jesus is God. And I say, really, do you believe that? And she says, yes. And I say, is that important for your faith? She says, yes. And I say, okay, I will grant you all four gospels. Where does Jesus say he is God? 
And without fail, whenever I posed that question to anyone, I was met with mostly silence, or if I got an answer, this was the answer. Nabil, Jesus says, the Father and I are one. Isn't that enough to show that Jesus claims to be God? I said, no, absolutely not, because you're getting that from the book of John. But in the book of John, chapter 17, Jesus prays for his disciples to be one, just as he is one with the Father. So Jesus is drawing a parallel between his oneness with the Father and the oneness he wants his disciples to have. Now, are you telling me he wants the disciples to be one big being? No, he wants the disciples to be unified in spirit, unified in heart. And in the same way, Jesus is one in spirit or one at heart with the Father. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then I would push the case a little bit further. And I'd say, in fact, if you want to go to the book of John, what about the verse that says the Father is greater than I? How could Jesus be God if the Father is greater than he is? Or, or how about we go to the other Gospels? What about the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, where Jesus can do no miracles in Galilee? It's not that he chose not to do miracles or would not do miracles. It says he could not do any miracles because of their lack of faith. And later on in Mark, chapter 13, Jesus says that he does not know when the end of times is. The angels don't know, the Son doesn't know, only the Father knows when the end of times is. Now, why is it that God doesn't know when the end of times is? Could he really be God? Could he be claiming to be God? I don't think so. And about this time, whoever I was talking to usually had like a deer in headlights look. And, and they basically said, you know, uh, well, it's what I believe and, and I believe it to be true. And if you believe in Jesus too, you'll be saved. And I, said, I have no reason to do that. You did not give me a compelling reason to accept your faith. In fact, if you want reason and you want to step away from blind faith, I'll introduce you to Islam. And so I would often turn these evangelical attempts into my own dawah, or my own Islamic evangelism. This continued, by the way. This happened a lot. Um, my parents had given me a little book which basically gave me the, the things to say to Christians if they try to share the message with you. I don't know if you know, but amongst Muslims, the term Christian missionary is kind of like a curse word. Um, it's, it's not a good word at all. So my parents had given me a little book, it was called Pocketbook, um, which was designed specifically to respond to common Christian issues, um, like original sin and, and uh, the deity of Christ and the Trinity. It wasn't until I got to the university level where I met someone who was able to give me a response for the questions I had. I'll give you the context. I had just started uh, school, this was back in 2001, at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. So I had joined the public speaking and debate team, um, and there was one guy on the team who immediately would lend a helping hand whenever one was needed. Um, he impressed my parents right off the bat when I was, they were dropping me off for an event. He came out and he rushed out and he helped with my bags and he said hi to my mom. And he was the only one who did that. And my mom was like, this is a good boy, follow him. <laughs> and so, and so I, would, I would spend time with him. And, at the end of, or at the beginning of our first tournament, um, we ended up rooming together. Um, there were a lot of reasons for that. The rest of the team went out. They went out drinking, clubbing, smoking, what have you. Some of them had brought drugs with them. And my parents had taught me, Nabil, never ever do any of those things. Always stand above anything that's immoral. Be above reproach. Um, my parents had told me that I had to be exemplary. And whenever someone, like a teacher or a chaperone, were to comment on me, they'd have to say to my parents that I was the most respectful and that I was the most truthful boy. That's how my parents had taught me. But here was somebody else who was aspiring to the same moral standard. And so we became friends quickly. 
as the first night uh, was drawing to a close, I was, I was getting ready for the following day, and I saw my friend David. Uh, he was reading his Bible. Now, understand, I had never conceptualized a Christian actually reading the Bible in their free time. Never seen it. I've seen Christians take Bibles to church. Uh, I had seen them read them in church, talk about them in church, but in the free time, never. It was beyond anything I'd ever experienced. So I'm, I'm sitting here looking at David, and I'm thinking, all right, you know, this is another chance to take down a Christian. This will be good. Um, and so I looked at him. I said, David, are, are, you a, are you a hardcore Christian? And he says, yeah, yeah, I am. So I said, all right, well, you do realize that the book you're reading is horribly corrupt. And he says, well, what do you mean? And I said, first off, we can't even trust what it says because we know that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. And the early church spoke Hebrew. So whatever Jesus said already went through a translation by the time the Hebrew-speaking church was around. But when the New Testament was actually written, it was written in Greek. And so by the time you have Jesus' words written down in the New Testament, you have a translation of a translation. At that point, the, the manuscript spread, and then you had... The, the, Roman, um, the Roman Empire take the religion over, and now you had the Vulgate, which was a Latin version of the Bible, and that's the one that really lasted for a long period of time. So you've now got a translation of a translation of a translation, and then it goes to German before it comes to English. And that's why you have the KJ, KJV, the NIV, the NASB, the who knows what V. You have so many versions of the Bible. How am I supposed to know which one is actually the Word of God? And David's response caught me off guard. He said, Nabil, let me tell you something. The disciples who wrote the New Testament knew how to speak multiple languages, and when they were writing down the words in Greek they had heard in Aramaic, they knew what Jesus was saying then, and they knew what Jesus was saying when they wrote down the scriptures. Not only that, but who's to say Jesus spoke in Aramaic? He could have spoken in any of a number of languages. Uh, sure, he spoke in Aramaic, but he could have taught in Greek as well. And if you're worried about whether we actually have the Word of God today that we had then, you need to understand that the manuscript record is extensive. We have over 20,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in many languages, over 5,000 of which are in Greek. Plus, we've got tens of thousands of quotations from the early church fathers, such that if we didn't have a single New Testament manuscript, we can reconstruct the entire New Testament, apart from 11 verses. And I said, David, you're making this up. <laughs> I said, I've talked to so many Christians about this, not one has ever given me an answer like that. And he said, try me. Let's do it. Let's, let's go on. Let's figure this out. And as long as you're interested in looking into it, I'm interested in responding, but you have to respond to certain things too. I said, all right, let's do it. By the end of this, you'll be Muslim, David. <laughs> and so we started going into it, and we became friends. So he was doing biology. I was doing pre-med at the time. So we took a lot of the same classes together. We took... Um, evolutionary biology together, we took genetics together, we took bio, gen chem, uh, organic chem, we took all those classes together, and so he would hang out with me regularly. Okay, so David was a real friend, uh, despite the fact that we, we had these conversations, and I would say actually, because of the fact that we'd have these conversations, there was nothing that was kind of blocking us. We were able to freely share what was important to us, and our faiths were important to both of us. But we did that in the context of relationships, so that I knew if he ever threw any punches at me, contextually, you know, argumentatively speaking, I would, I would be able to respond knowing that he's not trying to tear me down, he's trying to give me something he thinks is better. So whether or not I agree with him, I do think he's being my friend by arguing with me. 
And in that context, in that relationship, he was able to share all kinds of things, and I was able to share my thoughts with him. And our friendship was real. Um, like I said, I started college in 2001, and so, um, so that was August, uh, September of 2001. Um, things got crazy uh, when the two towers were attacked. I didn't know how to respond. See, my parents had taught me my whole life that Islam is a religion of peace. And if you've been in the West for any amount of time and discussed things with Muslims, you've probably heard that too. Islam is a religion of peace. My parents had taught me that. And here are people who, in the name of Allah, are flying planes into a building, killing all kinds of people. Now, I had been taught to understand when, you know, Americans invaded Muslim countries, you know, that's Westerners being imperialistic, that makes sense. But I had never been exposed in such a deep way to Muslims taking out innocence. It was powerful, it hit close to home, and I didn't really know what to do personally. I went through a period of crisis there. What is, what is this faith really about? How could these people come away with the idea that you can kill people if they're following the same faith I'm following? And so I began to become more careful about my search. But at the same time, David was there, and uh, he wouldn't cut me a break. I mean, we were, we were sitting down, we were watching uh, something going on with Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, um, and this was, uh, I think it was at my place. And David smacks me on the arm, as he does, characteristically smack. And uh, I look at him, I was like, what? And he says, pointing to Al-Qaeda, he's like, why don't you just call your cousins and tell them to quit it? <laughs> and I was like, man, <laughs> if you'd have done something about Hitler, then I'd think about it. Um, so it was a very real relationship. And we went forward and we talked about all kinds of issues. Now, if you know Muslims, if you've discussed with Muslims, there are all kinds of issues that their imams have taught them to bring up when these conversations are happening. We've already talked about the New Testament record, but after about a year of, of talking with David and looking into the record, I began to realize very quickly that the New Testament was accurate to what it originally said. Despite the fact that imams had told me my whole life that the New Testament was corrupt, I realized there's really no way the message could become corrupt. Now, if you want to say a word has been changed here or there, you don't know the exact sentence that's here, okay, I'll, um, I can see that. But you cannot persuasively show me, and I concluded this as a Muslim, you cannot persuasively show me that any doctrine has been manipulated. And um, actually, that's something, uh, I don't know if you, uh, I don't know how much you know about me, I'm still introducing myself, but I just finished a master's at Duke University, we were able to take some courses at UNC, and I took some courses under Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman himself says that no essential Christian doctrine has been jeopardized on account of the textual variance. It's clear. There, there is no way it could have been. So I concluded that one year in as a Muslim. But then I had other issues. What about salvation through Jesus' blood? Does that make any sense? I mean, every man has to carry his own burdens, does he not? How does one man paying for the sins of all mankind make any sense? And what about this trinity? How does this make any sense? And so we started looking into these things further and further. I'm going to go into a lot more detail on the apologetic issues on Saturday. Uh, so definitely come out on Saturday. Um, to, to get the details on all this, um, just breezing through it right now. Um, but very quickly, I looked into the deity of Christ at this point because I, I looked at the New Testament and I said, okay, it's, it's accurate to what it originally said, but what about Jesus? Because nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus claim to be God. I, I see where Paul says he's God in, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in Colossians and 1 Corinthians, and you know, we see Hebrews saying something similar, and we see Peter saying something similar in 2 Peter. But where does Jesus, in his own words, say he is God? That is extremely important to me. 
And you will hear Muslims say that all the time. Where does Jesus say he is God? When I looked into it, it became abundantly clear that the reason why I hadn't seen it is because I hadn't understood the context in which Jesus was speaking. Jesus was, at least in the Gospels, when Jesus is speaking, he is speaking to the people of that time and place. He's speaking according to a context. And the context there is first century Palestinian. When I'm listening with 20th century American ears, or 21st century as the case is, I, I don't really know exactly what Jesus is saying unless I understand the Jewish culture and the Jewish context. And so I said, okay, I don't want to start with John. I know all kinds of people start with John. I want to see it in the first gospel. I want to see it in the gospel of Mark. Where does Jesus claim to be God? Because if, if it's not in Mark, then we can say it's been added in later. Do you see that? I don't know if, any, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with gospel chronology. Most people, the consensus of scholarship is now that Mark has priority and that Luke and Matthew came next and John came last. And people always turn to John's gospel to talk about the deity of Christ. But it's the last one. Why not look at the first one? Because if the Christian message spread and the deity of Christ was important from its inception, then we should be able to see it in the first gospel. Doesn't that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. So I said, where do we see it in the gospel of Mark? And upon further investigation, I realized that we see it exactly where we'd expect to see it, which is when Jesus is asked, who are you? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Here's the high priest, Mark 14, 61, asking Jesus to say who he is. And Jesus has to respond, because you know from Romans, we're told that we have to respond to authorities, that God has put the authorities above us. And in this case, the high priest was no different over Christ. And so he is telling Jesus, he's charging him to tell him who he is. And Jesus responds by saying, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, 21st century American ears, what the heck did he just say? First century Palestinian ears, tear open your robes and say, he has just committed blasphemy. What do you all say? Is he not worthy of death? And they all say yes. What did Jesus say? Well, again, real quick, Jesus made a reference to three verses at, or at most, possibly two, but potentially three. He starts off by saying the I am, which if it were an I am statement, refers to Exodus chapter three, verse 14. He then responds by saying, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, which is a clear, unequivocal reference to Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. And then he says, probably in the most powerful of the three, that he will be seated at the right hand of the power, which is a reference to Psalm 110, verse one. Unpacking all of these, any of these, you will see that Jesus is making a very high claim as to his being. He's putting himself right there next to Yahweh. He's co-identifying himself, to borrow a term from Richard Bauckham, with Yahweh. I realized this uh, as a Muslim and I, I began to panic. I began to realize that Jesus himself aligns himself, co-identifies himself with God. Well, that shakes everything up because up to this point, I was able to put stuff off. I was able to just kind of argue academically. You know, I was trying to just challenge my friend David and I was, I was gonna bring him to Islam slowly but surely. But now, if the New Testament is accurate to what it originally says, and in it, Jesus claims to be God, I've got a problem. And so as a Muslim, I start praying a lot more fervently. And this issue became a lot more personal. We discussed the other stuff too. Uh, we discussed the issue of the Trinity. How can we know uh, whether God is three in one or not? And is that even possible? I remember exactly where I was um, when, 
we had this conversation. It was 2003. David and I were taking organic chemistry over the summer. Uh, we were being total goofballs, sitting right next to each other, front row. Professor was right here, and we'd pass notes right in front of her. And, and she, would, she would just shake her head because he was, he was number one in the class and I was number two. So she couldn't say anything. Um, it was awesome. So anyhow, one class, uh, it was really cool because we were waiting for David's first son to be born. So it was, it was a really fun time. Um, so one day, our professor, when talking about, uh, how many of you have taken chemistry? Eons ago, perhaps? Um, organic chemistry, any of you? Okay, you have my sympathies. Um, so our professor was talking about resonance structures, okay? So everything in the world is made up of molecules. Everything uh, physical in this world is made up of molecules. This podium, even though it's solid, is actually made up of molecules that are constantly moving. Uh, electrons and protons and neutrons make up each atom, which makes up each molecule. So this is actually moving really fast. And what you have is an ad, uh, a nucleus of an atom, the protons and neutrons. You got electrons floating around them really fast. When these atoms come together, they make molecules. And sometimes the electrons are shared amongst the molecules. Okay, that's all the science you need for this. <laughs> so these electrons that are shared, sometimes they jump into a different formation, conformation, back and forth. Those are called resonance structures. My professor said this. She said, a molecule is every single one of its resonance structures at every point in time. But it is no single one of its resonance structures at any point in time. Did you catch that? A molecule is every single one of its resonance structures at every point in time, but it is no single one of its resonance structures at any single point in time. And I listened to her, and I said, if she as a scientist can believe that, What's the problem with the Trinity? Yeah. <laughs> Let me unpack that for you just a little bit. When we understand science at a deeper level, when we, when we look microscopically or, or we look really big, we begin to realize that not everything works the way it works in the macro level here. Things work differently, even in the natural world. Light, for example, exists as both a particle and a wave. That makes no sense to physicists, but they know it's true. But more importantly, I began to realize, why am I putting God in a box? If God is incomprehensible, maybe my comprehension is smaller than God. In fact, if, if God made man, I would expect man to not be able to grasp God. And when I realized that, my, my qualms with the Trinity dissipated. Now, I didn't think the Trinity was compelling, I didn't think that there was a good reason to believe it, but I began to realize that it was viable. It was a viable model for the nature of God. I had other issues, salvation through Jesus' blood. Again, how can one man pay for the sins of all mankind, you know? It's like walking up to President Obama and saying, Obama, I realize the national debt is tens of trillions of dollars. Here's a dollar, <laughs> let's call it even. No, just mathematically, it doesn't work. And I posed that question to David. And again, I remember exactly where we were. When we talked about this, we were at Tropical Smoothie. And uh, I, I said to him, you know, this doesn't work. And he says, Nabil, you were, you were compartmentalizing things we're discussing here. In order to understand this, you have to remember that Jesus isn't just a man. If he were just a man, then yes, it wouldn't make sense. But God's bank account isn't one dollar. 
God has an infinite bank account. And if God is the one paying for the sins of mankind, he can do that and have an infinite ability to pay more. Because he's God. And I realized, yeah, I was kind of dividing up the issues. I wasn't giving a fair hearing to the Christian case. So these things began to add up. Um, Interestingly, I don't generally share this, but I'll tell you. um, Interestingly, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Uh, David came up to me one day, and he said, Nabil, I can see, this was earlier on, this was earlier on. He said, Nabil, I can see that you, uh, you, you like talking about these things, but they're not affecting your heart. They're not affecting your person. What would make it such that you would actually consider Christianity as a, po- a potential truth? And I said, well, you're right. I don't think it's even possibly true. But in order for me to think it were possibly true, you would have to show me that my father could not respond to certain objections. So if you were able to argue my father uh, out, of, out of this position, or out of one of his positions, then I would consider it. And he said, great, why don't you bring your dad to such and such a place next Saturday, and you and I and three of my friends can sit down and we'll talk about these issues. I said, sounds good. So David's friends turned out to be, um, Michael Lacona lived in our neighborhood. <laughs> and so, so we're at Mike Lacona's house, and uh, Mike Lacona brings his friend, Gary Habermas, in. And so it's, it's me and David and, uh, and my dad, and Gary, Mike, and another person there. Um, and uh, we talked about the resurrection. Uh, we talked about whether Jesus died on the cross. We talked about um, the Shroud of Turin. Um, suffice it to say that about an hour in, I began to realize that uh, we had no leg to stand on. Uh, the Quran teaches that Jesus did not die on the cross. Chapter 4, verse 157 of the Quran teaches that he did not die, nor was he crucified, but so it was made to appear. Well, when you look at the historical evidence, you have to take a stand. As a Muslim, you have to say, either I'm going to stand with my theology or I'm going to stand with history. You can't, you can't pick both. You can't have your cake and eat it too on this issue because history stands against, entirely against, the Islamic position. And they made us realize that rather fast. Um, and as I walked out of there, I realized that, yeah, my dad doesn't really have all the answers, which is understandable. He wasn't trained or anything. I just looked up to him that much as far as my, my source of Islamic teaching. Um, and that's something that we'll revisit later, the issue of authority amongst Muslims is extremely important, uh, and we will revisit that. But later on, in 2004, so that was closer to 2001, in 2004, David um, took me to a debate between Michael Lacona and Shabir Ali. Um, This happened at Regent University, which was just down the street from where I was living, Um, and they debated the issue of the resurrection. Uh, I sat with David on my left and Gary Habermas on my right, and uh, Gary was constantly commenting as we were going along, and uh, as we walked out of there, um, Gary asked me, he said, oh, actually, David asked me, he said, Nabil, what do you think of the debate? And I said, you know, honestly, I think that Mike had the better position. I don't think he was compelling, but he did win the debate. Uh, and, and Gary says, so as it stands right now, you think the resurrection is more compelling? And I said, yeah, but that's all you have over the Islamic case. And he looks at me, he's like, the resurrection is all we have? <laughs> <laughs> Like, that's all we need, Nabil. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> so, 
the things began to stack up. And notice, for me, the objections were primarily intellectual. Why is that? You know, I'm gonna take a pause here. Why is that? Is that the case for all Muslims? I don't think so. I don't think that's the case for everyone because what, was, what are a lot of people lacking, especially in Islamic culture, that I wasn't lacking at that time? An intimate connection with their father and an intimate relationship with the family. Love. I had plenty of love in that family. I mean, my mom loved me. She poured, I mean, I'm the only son in our family. And so she poured into me and invested in me. She really loved me and my father as well. And they didn't teach me to be, you know, like a lot of Muslims are taught in, out in the East. They're taught to be, you know, chauvinistic and male-centered and whatnot. That wasn't the way our father modeled fatherhood. Uh, he was a very loving father, very giving and self-sacrificial. Um, so I had a good image of the father. And so I wasn't lacking that kind of love. What I was lacking was reason. And so for me, reason had almost everything to do with it. And when the reason began to be pulled out from under me, I all of a sudden had to rely on God. I had to, and, I, and my bases were falling apart fast. So at about this time, David turns to me and he says, Nabil, we've talked about Christianity for years. Do you want to talk about Islam? Um, and there's a reason he asked me that. It's because he said, Nabil, you, wh where do you stack the Christian case? And I said, you know, I'll put the Christian case right now at about 80, 85%. It's pretty solid. And he says, where do you put the Islamic case? 100%. <laughs> it's got no flaw, no chink in its armor. Islam is absolutely true. Um, and he says, all right, well, we haven't discussed it yet. Are you willing to discuss it now? And I was like, sure, let's do it. So we started talking about Islam. And very quickly, I began to realize that everything that I had been taught about Islam, I was taught from modern sources. Biographies of Muhammad's life, what were the ones I was reading? I was reading Martin Ling's, you know, written in the 20th century. I was, written, I was reading one by Mirza Bashir Ahmed, also written in the 20th century. Now, I'm reading lives of Muhammad that were written far later. And David pointed out, Nabil, if you really want to know what Muhammad said, stop reading modern authors. Let's go back to the early sources. Let's read, let's read the, the first biographies and let's read the Hadith. And I said, absolutely, let's do it. Because I had faith that what my, what my family had taught me, what my imams had taught me, what those books had taught me were accurate to what originally Muhammad was like and how he was recorded. So we started reading the earliest things of Muhammad's life. And I was shocked at the things we found. We'll be talking about this a lot more tomorrow. Muhammad's life is on the agenda for tomorrow. Um, but the things I was finding about Muhammad that no one had ever taught me and that were not just existent in the earliest sources but prevalent in the earliest sources were shocking. And so all of a sudden, my main exemplar, the one who I was modeling my life after, was not the man I thought he was. And there was no way around that. But then I said, well, we have to look at the Quran too, because if the Quran truly is the word of Allah, then it vindicates Muhammad. And maybe all this history is bad, and if the Quran is the inspired word of God, it vindicates Muhammad. Think about that for a second. I had, I had actually laid out a case, and I was, I was following out the case for Islam, the case for Christianity. Here's what I saw the case for Christianity to be. Jesus would have to have died on the cross for the sins of mankind, and death on the cross is objectively verifiable. You can, at least historically, you can look into history to see whether or not it's probable that Jesus died on the cross. Then the second issue we had to look at was, did he rise from the dead, the resurrection? If Jesus rose from the dead, then Christianity can be true, probably is true, but if he did not rise from the dead, Christianity is definitely false. Final issue, did Jesus claim to be God? Did he claim to be God? 
if Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and claimed to be God, all three of them, if any one of them is missing, it doesn't work, all three of them, then Christianity has a solid case. And like I said, I concluded about 80, 85%, it's a good case. And then I looked at Islam. What's the case for Islam? I said, either Muhammad would have to be a prophet of God, so if Muhammad looks like that kind of man who is a prophet, and, and rather certainly so, then we can say Islam is true, or if the Quran is the word of God. If we take a look at the Quran, we investigate it, and we say, hey, this is the word of God, this is definitely inspired, then Islam is true. Either one, not necessarily both, either one, because one vindicates the other. Muhammad, if he's a prophet, would vindicate the Quran, Quran would vindicate Muhammad, so they were tied there. So then I said, let's look at the Quran. What are the arguments for the inspiration of the Quran? Well, the number one argument that Muslims will use is the argument that's found in the Quran itself, that the Quran is inimitable in its style and its literary quality. It is so literarily excellent that no one could ever write a book like it, or even 10 chapters like it, or the Quran even says, no one can write even one chapter like the Quran. This is the challenge the Quran itself issues. If anyone comes to Muhammad and says, you are but a forger, or you are just someone who's making things up, Muhammad would respond by saying, well then you write a chapter like it, or write a book like it, and you will see you cannot. Call all the hosts of heaven or the hosts of demons, the unseen, it says the jinn, call the jinn with you, and you will realize you can't write a book like this. So that's the number one challenge. Uh, we'll talk about it tomorrow, but we realized, um, I realized that that challenge just doesn't work. Another thing, and probably the second largest thing, maybe even functionally more important than the first, is that the Quran is perfectly preserved. No change has ever been introduced into the Quran ever. Today it exists in the exact same form it existed when it was originally compiled. No changes have ever been made, not a jot, not a dot, nothing. It's exactly the same. Compare this to the Bible where you have Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 16, 9 through 20, which was tossed in there. You had John, the end of John 7, beginning of John 8, which was tossed in there. And you had changes in 1 John. You changes all over the place that lots of people, all kinds of changes, obviously corrupted. The Quran, unchanged, perfectly preserved, divine word of God. And this vindicates the Quran because the Quran says in chapter 15 that Allah will preserve it. Chapter 15, verse 9, Allah will preserve, he will guard this Quran. So, we looked into the preservation of the Quran. Began to realize that there were significant problems there as well. And again, we'll talk about that tomorrow. There were other arguments for the Quran, the science in the Quran. A lot of people turned to scientific issues. Uh, look at the Quran, it has these scientific miracles in it. How could Muhammad have known this scientific knowledge? Clearly he didn't, Allah was telling it to him, therefore this is the inspired book. And I think that's the most argumentatively sound of all the arguments. Um, if there is knowledge that surpassed Muhammad in the Quran, then it was written by a more intelligent being, and the one on the list would probably be God. But I quickly realized that all the scientific miracles, or the scientific knowledge in the Quran, were simply trumped up. They weren't actually there. So I concluded then, that the case for Christianity was looking far more strong than the case for Islam. And if I were going to be objective about this, that would have to change, or I would have to leave Islam. So I started praying a lot. At this point, I was looking for ways out of the argument. I was looking for you know, circumvention, like how do, I, how do I get away from this? And uh, David and I were graduating, so this is 2004. 
Um, and I remember we were sitting in the parking garage and he's in the car, or he's in the car, he's sitting on the passenger seat. And uh, I turned to David and I say, look, David, I have a problem here. Christianity demands that I accept Jesus as the risen Savior in order for me to save, correct? He says, yes, you have to accept Christ as your risen Savior in order to be saved. Well, if that's the case, David, then God is making me rely upon a fact in order to be saved. I have to have certain knowledge in order to be saved. But as it turns out, no one has access to objective truth. We all have filters. We all have lenses through which we see the world. How could God, in a just manner, expect me to know a fact in order to be saved? It doesn't make any sense. I don't have access to that truth. And therefore, I, God is unjust to expect me to know that. I can't believe in Christianity. And David, without looking at me, again, characteristically, he said, Nabil, you know that's not true. And I said, darn. <laughs> Because I knew what he was saying. He hadn't said it yet, but I knew what he was saying. He was saying, Nabil, if you believe in God, then God has access to absolute truth and he can lead you to it. And that's true. I completely believed, even at that time in the verse, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock, and the door shall be open for you. There's a very similar verse in the Quran. Not too similar, but similar in its meaning. If you seek God, he'll, he'll answer. And so at this point, I put all the argumentation aside. Well, not completely. I did take it to people to get more answers and to, in case I had missed something. But now it, it became a matter of praying. And I traveled from mosque to mosque to mosque, praying and asking imams to answer the questions that I had. The biggest issue that I had, I, I didn't even get to tell you the biggest issue I had. Um, it had to do with the Quran. It's found all over the Quran, um, but there was one verse that caught my eye. Uh, it's chapter 4, verse 24 of the Quran, the Surah on Women. 434 is the one that people normally focus on, but 424 was a bigger deal to me. In it, it said, Aloud for you are women whom you have married and those whom your right hands possess. So aloud for you are your wives and those whom your right hands possess. What does that mean? You know, it doesn't really make sense to me. So I asked my parents what it means, and my parents said, ah, Nabil, it means that you're allowed to marry your handmaidens, because the, the women whom your right hands possess, those are your handmaidens. Those are your slaves, or your servants. My parents never called them slaves. Those are your servants, um, and you can marry them if you choose. But I said, that doesn't make sense, because it says, allowed for you are your wives and those whom your right hands possess. So. You, wives are a separate category. Women you've married are over here. Here are other people, and they're allowed as well. For what? And she said, well, I don't know any more than that. If you wanna, if you wanna know more, go look at the commentary. And so I went to the Hadith, and I looked it up. Sahih Muslim tells us, he gives multiple cases of this, but the, the one, I'm gonna kinda conflate them, but they're all there in the Sahih. Soldiers of Muhammad approached Muhammad out on the battlefield and they said to him, Muhammad, we are far away from our wives and we are in want of sexual relief. We have these slave women. We do not want to get them pregnant. So is it okay for us to pull out early or should we just finish? 
And Muhammad's response is, it doesn't matter whether you pull out early or if you finish, they'll get pregnant either way. In other words, Muhammad says, these women whom you've captured on the battlefield, you can have intercourse with them. We read in other hadith, also found in Sahih Muslim, that they're asking if they can do that while their husbands are still alive. And you can hear their husbands groaning from among the prisoners. Another hadith clarifies that they ask if they can do that, even if they're planning on selling the women into slavery. And Muhammad says yes. So what is, what is being said here? Let's draw this stuff together, the commentary, and I'll provide all the references for you over the next few days. Muhammad says that women who've been captured on the battlefield, whose husbands are still alive, whose family was just slaughtered, and who've lost everything, their way of life, they're about to become slaves, these women can be used for sexual relief, made pregnant, and then sold into slavery. If that is not rape of the worst kind, I don't know what is. And this is in the Quran? Chapter 424? Allowed for you or those whom your right hands possess? You can, you can have intercourse with your slave women? I couldn't stand for that. That for me was unconscionable. I mean, all the other things that were going on in Muhammad's life and in the Quran, I could kind of explain away. A lot of people have an issue with the fact that when Muhammad was 49, he married a six-year-old girl, and that when he was 52, he consummated that relationship with her. She was nine years old. A lot of people have an issue with that. I did what most Muslims do, which is say that was for that time and place. They, they, were, di they were different then. Now we're supposed to do something else. A lot of Muslims contextualize it that way, even though it really doesn't work, theologically speaking. However, this I could not overlook, because I immediately imagined my mother or my sister having been captured in battle after having lost me or my father. Would that be something a, a good and just God would allow? No. And so when I would go from mosque to mosque, I would ask imams, I would say, explain this to me. And not just this, I had a slew of objections that David had brought up, and I'd say, can you, can you explain these for me? And we'd go through them, and I was still Muslim at the time, I would wake up early to go pray the morning prayer at the mosque, even if it meant walking a mile. Um, I remember in London, when I went to the London mosque, I would walk a mile to get to the mosque to pray in the morning. And I'd walk back, by the time I got back, I'd be hungry, and then I'd eat, and I'd walk for the afternoon prayers. Um, it pretty much consumed my time there, but it was worth it because I wanted to seek God and I wanted to find the answers to these questions. And no imam that I brought the questions to was able to provide a good answer, quite frankly, because there is none. There is no good answer. This is exactly what the hadith record. The best an imam could do is they could say, well, these hadith are not trustworthy. I'm like all of them, this whole genre of hadith are not trustworthy because there's more than one. Yes, none of them are trustworthy, it was all made up. Then how can I trust them for anything? If they're so horribly fabricated at a very fundamental level, how can I trust them for anything? And the answer was, well, you can trust them if they teach according to the spirit of Islam. Well, what is the spirit of Islam? Am I not getting the spirit of Islam from the Hadith? No, you're supposed to turn to the Quran. Well, the Quran had this in 424. And you can see the arguments would just go and go. And ultimately, their response was, you have to listen to us, you're being rebellious, you're, you're not being a respectful young boy, you need to listen to your elders. Which is a legitimate position in our culture. Stop asking questions, shut up and just do what we say. It's a, it's a very common way of life for many people, but I couldn't do that. So then I turned to God alone. And I started praying and fasting, I'm sorry, not praying and fasting, praying and asking God for a direct sign 
Understand in Islamic culture, Middle Eastern culture in general, you have a lot of reliance upon the supernatural, upon dreams and visions to guide you on various issues. For example, my sister decided not to marry someone because she got a dream um, about that. In fact, my sister had been praying a special prayer called the Istikhara prayer, which asks God to give you a dream or a vision or some kind of guidance. So she decided not to marry someone based on that. My father, my gosh, my father got all kinds of crazy dreams. He got so many dreams that came true that he asked God to stop giving them to him. Um, he, he got scared. I'll give you an example. My father, when he was in the, he was, he was enlisted first, then he went on to the officer ranks. When he was going from E5 to E6, he had to take a test. And he took it with five of his buddies. When he takes the test, he has a dream that night where he and his friend, one of the five, um, I'm sorry, where all, all of them are in a field, in the middle of a battlefield, and they're being shot at. And they see a fence off in the distance. And they know that if they make it over that fence, they'll, they'll be alive, but if they don't, they'll die. And so they start running for that fence. And my dad jumps and he makes it over, and one of his friends makes it over, but the other four friends do not. When they get the test scores back, guess what? My dad had passed, that one friend had passed, and none of the other friends did. It's commonplace. My dad tells that story as if it's another story. Um, there's a creepy one. Uh, my grandmother, when her father died, um, she had a dream, after they had buried him, um, she had a dream that in the middle of the night, she hears a knocking on the door. This is a dream. Someone almost had a heart attack when she didn't hear that this was a dream. Um, so uh, she's dreaming that uh, she's asleep, and then she wakes up, still in the dream, and she goes to the door because someone's knocking at the door. She opens it, and there's her newly deceased father covered in water, just drenched. And he says to her, help me. That's the whole dream. She wakes up. She's scared. Um, that's scary. And so she gives money um, to the poor. That's what we did in our culture when we had bad dreams. We'd give money to the poor immediately. And then she went to sleep that night, had the same dream. Three nights in the row, she gets the same dream. She can't take it anymore. She goes to the imam and she says, what should I do? And the imam says, I don't know what you should do, but here's some advice. Just go, pray about it, go visit your father's grave um, and see what happens. And so she prays and she goes to the grave. Well, it turns out that at that time was the monsoon season. So this is when the rains had started up in Pakistan. And an animal had burrowed into her father's grave. And the grave was full of water. That's creepy. That's Stephen King stuff. Um, the, the last one, and those are ones I've heard as stories, but this one I saw. Um, I didn't see it myself, but uh, I was there when it happened. Um, back in October, my mother gets a dream um, where her father, I'm sorry, her grandfather and her aunt have come and are asking for my grandmother. So her, her, my mom's grandfather and my mom's aunt, so in other words, my grandmother's father and my grandmother's sister, who've both passed away, they come and they ask for my grandmother, who's still alive. And uh, my mom has this dream. She, she thinks it means that my grandmother's going to die. And so she immediately wakes up, she gives money, um, and she doesn't say anything about it. She has the same dream again. I think she had it twice. And then she calls my aunt in 
England. My aunt in England picks up the phone and they just kind of have this small talk. Hey, how's it going? Any, any weird dreams lately? Yeah. <laughs> my aunt had had the same dream. And so that got them to the point where they're saying, we have to check on Ami, which is mother. So they called up my grandmother, say, how are you doing? She said, great, I'm doing better than I have in a long time, fine. And they said, oh, okay, it must have been just a crazy coincidence. Less than a week later, my grandmother passed away. So I am not here to tell you why this happens. I'm not here to fit it into your theology. I'm just telling you that it happens. Um, and it means a lot to Muslims. Even I, at the time, uh, I was relying upon dreams and visions for guidance from God. So I asked God. I said, God, can you, can you please give me a dream or a vision? And I'd pray for it more and more. Um, I, it got to the point where I was praying for this. Um, I don't know if you've seen Muslims pray, but there's a point in the prayer where you've got your nose to the ground and you're prostrate before Allah. And it's a very humbling position. Um, you know, we as believers have a lot of freedom to pray however we want, but I would suggest you try that at some point. Just put your face to the ground before God. Changes the way you think. And I'm just pouring myself out to God and I'm saying, God, can you please just give me a dream or a vision or whatever it is to show me what the truth is. Whatever the truth is, I want to follow it. I don't care if it's Islam or if it's Christianity. I just care about who you are. And it doesn't matter how difficult the path is to walk, I will walk it. And that was my prayer. Um, and I probably wouldn't have prayed that had I known then what I know now. But that was my prayer then. Well, gradually I became more and more distraught. Gradually it came to the point where the cognitive dissonance was just too much. And I was now crying when I was praying. Um, this was in December of 2004. My, this was my first semester of medical school. I just finished. My dad said, Nabil, let's come down to Florida. I have a conference there. I want to bring you with me. Um, and we can just, you know, relax and take a break. And I said, sure. So I'm down in Orlando, Florida, and my father is asleep in the bed to my left. Uh, I remember the exact day. It was, it was midnight, right before December 20th. I remember that because it was a f December 20th, my parents' anniversary. It was the first time he forgot to buy her flowers. Um, that wasn't good. So anyhow, so he's in the bed to my left, and I'm, I'm kneeling at my bed, and I'm just praying, and I'm crying. And I'm asking God, God, can you just give me a vision, a dream, a sign, something, anything. Because I cannot get to this truth. You need to give me this truth if I'm going to know what it is. Because I can't get to it myself. It was probably one of the most humble moments of my life. And at that moment, I received a vision. And it's hard to describe, but if you can imagine, I was sitting at the edge of my bed. And, I mean, the wall which was just a few feet away from me. I mean, it was already dark in the room, but at this point, it was gone. It was like pitch black. Everything was gone. And all I saw instead of the room was just thousands of crosses. And I was in that vision probably for a second, a minute, I don't know. But as soon as I came out of that, I looked up at God and I said, God, this doesn't count. <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm in Florida, you know, Epcot Center, it's a small world after all, things are messing with my head. Could be jet lagged, who knows. I can't, I can't trust this, you know, maybe this is my mind. And you have to understand, from a Muslim perspective, 
there are a lot of things that are keeping you from accepting the gospel. There's a lot. Okay, for one, I didn't know this at the time, but reflectively I, I realized that what was playing at my mind at the time was number one, if I accepted Christ, if I believed that this vision was really from God, in other words, then I was going to have to not just give up my family, but hurt them more deeply than they've ever been hurt. And reciprocally, I would be hurt more deeply than I had ever been hurt. I was going to have to lose everything as far as my friends and family was concerned. I mean, just to give you a picture, at the time, when I was going to family meetings, if there was Friday prayers, Friday is a Sabbath for Muslims, if there was a Friday prayer, someone has to lead the Friday prayer, they generally pick the person who's the most well, well-versed in the Quran and the Hadith, etc. And I was often the one that was picked. I was the one who would lead the Friday prayers. I was the closest one to an imam that was often there. When my cousins had questions about Islam, they would come to me. They would ask me, and I would do the exegesis from the Hadith or from the Quran. That was me. I was the one who was expected to carry this banner of Islam in my family. And here I was about to let down everyone if I accepted what I'd just seen as a vision. In addition to that, Muslims have to often, I didn't thankfully, well, not from my friends and family, but Muslims often have to face the possibility of death for leaving Islam. (coughs) It's called the law of apostasy. The main four schools of Sunni thought and the main three schools of Shia thought all believe in the law of apostasy. Under some circumstance or another, you can be killed for leaving your Islamic faith. Now they put different qualifiers on it. Should you be given a few days to repent? Should you not? What if you're a woman? Um, What if you're in the West as opposed to an Islamic nation? Different people put different qualifiers on it. But under some circumstance or another, the vast majority of Muslims think that you can be killed for leaving your Islamic faith, and that does hinder a Muslim from accepting the gospel message. But probably the one that mattered the most to me, um, or more than that anyway, was the fact that the Quran teaches that if you believe that anyone other than Allah is God, you are committing the only unforgivable sin, shirk. And you can go to hell for it. In fact, you will go to hell for it. Specifically mentioned, by the way, this is chapter 5, verse 72 of the Quran. Specifically mentioned in that verse is Jesus. If you believe Jesus is God, you are among the unforgivable. And you're going to hell. So a Muslim is faced with losing everything he has as far as family and friends on this life. Maybe losing his life itself. And if he's wrong, losing his afterlife. There is a lot at stake. And that plays in the back of the Muslim's mind. It's not something that they're thinking of, oh, I have to give this up in order to accept. It's not that conscious. It's not at that level. It's a subconscious thing. And so for me, I I needed more certainty before I would accept everything. And so I asked God, I said, God, can you give me another dream? I'm sorry, not a vision, a dream. Forget I ever asked for a vision. Can you please give me a dream? And if that dream tells me to become a Christian, I'll become a Christian. And if it tells me to stay Muslim, I'll become Muslim. I'll stay Muslim. Well, that night I got a dream. And uh, I I don't think we have the time tonight to go into the details. You can read it on my website. Um, My website is creed26.com, by the way. C-R-E-E-D, 26, the numbers, dot com. Suffice it to say, it was very symbolic, okay? This dream, it was kind of like Pharaoh and Joseph dream, like animals and big giant things and you know, things that don't make sense. Um, 
And I came out of it, and when I came out of it, I sat down, I contemplated, I thought, and I concluded that the dream was indicating that I should become a Christian, but I couldn't be sure because it was so symbolic. I asked my parents, I said, what do you think? And they interpreted it the same way I interpreted it, but without the same conclusion. They interpreted each of the symbols the same way I had. But when I asked them what they thought it meant, they said, we don't know. And then I asked my friend Dave, and he's like, what do you think it means? <laughs> so I went back to God, and I said, God, can you give me three dreams? You like the number three? <laughs> and uh, please make the next one extremely clear. Um, I'm, I'm saying it like I was demanding these things of God. Uh, I, was just, I was actually just really, really asking for them. Um, and so... Interestingly, God took more and more time to give me these. The, the vision I had immediately, and then the, the dream I had later that night, and then the, third, or the second dream I had a few days after I asked for it. But this one's a very clear one, and I'll share it with you. In this dream, I'm standing at the threshold of a narrow door. Okay, this, I mean, the door is very narrow. That's the most poignant part of the dream. It's just wide enough to fit me, and it's just tall enough to fit me. And it has some depth to it five, six feet or so, made of brick. It's a doorway, kind of. And at the other end of the doorway is a room set with a feast. Round tables everywhere in this room and the food on the tables, but people haven't started eating yet. Everyone is dressed up extremely well and they're sitting at the tables, but they haven't started eating. They're all looking that way. They're waiting for the speaker or the owner or whoever to come and start the event. I know I want to be in that room. Like that is where I want to be. But I can't get into that room because at the other end of the doorway is my friend David. He's blocking it. He's sitting there. And I can't get past him. And so I look at him and I'm like, David, I thought we were going to eat together. And he says, you never responded. And even in the dream, I knew that in order to get into that room where I wanted to be, I needed to respond to David's invitation. When I woke up, I called David. And I said, David, what do you think this means? And I could hear his eyes roll. And he says, Nabil, this dream is so clear, I don't have to interpret it for you. Which reminded me of what I had asked God. I said, God, can you give me a dream so clear I don't have to interpret it? And I said, what do you mean, David? And he says, just go to Luke chapter 13, verse 22. And I had been given a Bible by David, an NIV study Bible, well before I'd ever planned on reading it. And so I pulled it out and I opened it up. And in the NIV study Bible, Luke 13, 22 starts off with the words, the narrow door. And my heart kind of skipped a beat. I, you know, I hadn't read this section of Luke before. I'm gonna paraphrase it for you. Here's what it said. Jesus is going through the towns and villages preaching the good news of the gospel. And the disciples asked him, Lord, are many people going to be saved? And he says, make every effort to enter through that narrow door because many, I tell you, will try, and few will be able. And you will see people sitting inside at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Make every effort to enter before the owner comes and closes the door, or you'll be left outside weeping and gnashing your teeth. God had given me a dream where he placed me in the center of a New Testament parable, and he showed me exactly where I was and what I needed to do in order to be saved. He left no room for error. And so I did what you all know I would do, which is I asked him for a third dream. <laughs> and you can read that on my website too. Um, but at the end of the summer, 
So this is now summer of 2005. I knew what I'd have to do. I knew it. I knew what was true. But I knew that it was going to hurt me tremendously. And this was the end of the summer of my first year of med school, so I was just about to start the second year. In fact, it was my first day of second year of med school where I'm driving to school, and I decide all of a sudden, wait a minute, I can't do this. I need to turn around, go to my apartment, because I need <coughs> comfort right now. I need time to mourn. And I said that to God. I said, God, I know what I'm going to have to do, and I need time to mourn before I do it, because I'm about to lose a lot. And so I went back to my apartment, and I opened up the Quran. And I started looking through it, and I said, where can I receive comfort here? Nowhere. There is nowhere in the Quran that actually touches your heart when you're in need for comfort. It was a book. I mean, it was, it was a book from the 7th century. It, it had all the trappings of a 7th century book, and it did not touch the need of a 21st century young boy, or young man, as it were. So I said, all right, I'll go to the New Testament. So open up the New Testament. started with the beginning, Matthew 1. Realize there are a bunch of genealogies, skipped. <laughs> Went on to chapter four, start reading about Jesus. It wasn't long before I got to chapter five, which says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And it was like at that moment, electricity shot through me. It was like, this book is alive. This book is speaking to me. This was written for me 2,000 years ago. I don't know about the rest of you, but it was definitely written for me. So I started reading the New Testament. I'm going through back and forth. Like I said, this is an NIV study Bible. So there's all kinds of notes at the bottom. And I'm going back and forth. I'm reading all kinds of things. And I'm moving. And, you know, there's one part which says, you can, you can pray before God in confidence. I'm like, how do I know that? It says, go to 1 John 5. I skipped to 1 John 5. It says, you can pray before God in confidence because you have accepted Christ. I'm like, I haven't yet. And so, <laughs> and so it's like, oh, I was just torn. And it took me a while to get to Matthew 10. But Matthew 10 makes it very clear. He who accepts me before the people of this world, I will accept before my Father in heaven. And he who denies me before the people of this world, I will deny before my Father in heaven. See, I had gotten to this point where I intellectually knew Christianity was a strong case. I had emotionally received all kinds of guidance through the New Testament, and I had spiritual guidance from the Lord himself, and yet I had not proclaimed Christ. And so... Without anyone leading me, I uh, bowed at the edge of my bed and I prayed the most Muslim version of the sinner's prayer you may have ever heard. Um, but I prayed for the Lord to be Lord over my life and I submitted to the fact that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose. So that is the story of how I became a believer. But when it all clicked for me was a few days later. A few days later, after my parents knew, after they had found out, after I had, David had just moved. Uh, David had moved to New York, so my best friend was gone as well. I was all alone. I was praying before God, and I, I prayed to him through tears, and I said, God, why is it that I am still here? I cannot bear this kind of pain. Why did you not lift me up to heaven the moment I believed? Because I can't take this. This is too difficult. And I don't know about your theology again. I'm just going to tell you what happened to me. At that moment, I heard the words, because it is not about you. And all of a sudden, 
I felt like I had been shocked by 10,000 volts of electricity. I was stuck. I was literally mouth agape stuck for like 10 minutes. Just couldn't process. I was like rewired. I was rebooted in that moment. I just got up and I walked out. And all the pain and all the, all the travail just kind of melted. And I got up and I walked out and I looked outside and I looked at the world and it looked so different. But I saw somebody walking and all of a sudden, that person looked so, more, so much more different than any person had ever looked because what I saw was not just someone. What I saw was someone that Christ had died for, that God himself had come incarnate into this world, that he was willing to take on pain and suffering and the humiliation of human flesh in order to die for. And I'm sitting here saying, woe is me. I'm sitting here thinking, why can't I go to heaven? God was in heaven when he came down to this earth, willing to suffer and die for the sake of others. And if I am going to follow Jesus the way he should be followed, then I ought to be willing to follow him by following him even to death and suffering if the need be. All of a sudden, my world changed, and I realized what the gospel really meant. And what it meant was a total change in my life. So that is me, in a nutshell. That's my introduction, that's my story. That's the story of how one person left Islam and accepted the Lord. Now, most stories you'll hear from former Muslims are, are very different. A man by the name of George Husni, um, up in Boulder, Colorado, has done some studies, and he says that about 70% of people you encounter will tell you, former Muslims, will tell you that there was some spiritual guidance, either some vision or some dream, that's true. The vast majority of them, though, do not have the ability to get a strong, solid case for Christianity. What they get instead is love from a friend or from someone they knew through a church. He said 100% of the people he surveyed said that love from a Christian, Christian love, was what led them to the Lord. So I was very different in that regard. For me, I had a friend, but it wasn't the love from him that I needed. It was the argumentation, which is what, how he really helped, and the rest the Lord did from there by himself. But that's my story, um, and I hope that colors your picture of Muslims and Muslims in the West. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.